welcome to our Mark Bible study. We are continuing in the Gospel of Mark. What we've been doing, the format we've been following, is working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And the way I prepare for this is I read through the text and ask interpretive questions. I'm asking interpretive questions of the text so that I can understand it. I'm not asking questions uh, in terms of doubting the text, in terms of challenging the text. We ask questions of the biblical text as we ask questions of any text. What does this mean? What's it trying to communicate? What's the context in which it originated? What's, how, how do we read it in our context? How do we understand it? How do we put it into practice? So those are the kinds of questions we're getting at here. And, and if you've joined us before, you, you know that sometimes I have answers to these questions. A lot of times I don't have answers to the questions. Sometimes the, the questions that we don't have answers to provoke us to use our imagination. Uh, it's helpful to imagine us into the text and to do that. Morning, Carolyn. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll plunge into Mark chapter 4. Father, I thank you today for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for his, his quick, pithy retelling of the story of Jesus, sharing Jesus' life and ministry with us. Guide us today as we look at Mark chapter 4, the story of the, of the sower that went out, goes out and sows seed seemingly randomly. Help us to understand this enough that we know what we need to do in response to it. Let it not just be knowledge that we cram into our head, understanding that we file away for future reference, but let it be something that changes our lives and makes us more yours. Amen. Oh, let's see if I can get us over to the text here. I will share my screen. Here we go. Here's the first part of Mark's story here that we're looking at. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out in the lake. All the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, my first question here is one that might occur to you. Why does Jesus like to teach by the lake? And we might say, well, by the lake is nice. You get a breeze coming off the water. It's pleasant. You have the sound of the gently lapping waves. It's, it's just a nice place to be. We, we know how we like to go out to the lake if we're boating or watching the birds or fishing or swimming. The lake's just a fun place. But why does Jesus do it? Uh, it doesn't explain in the text why he does it, just that he does it. He frequently gets out there and is teaching by the lake. It might have been a convenient place for people to gather. It, it might have been that 
through his experience, Jesus had some favorite spots there along the lake. And people begin to learn that those are the spots where they can reliably find Jesus, reliably intersect with him and get his teaching. Question two, and this is a question we keep asking as we go through the gospel. What attracted people to Jesus' teaching? We saw back in Mark chapter one, when Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, that the people recognized that he taught as one with authority, not like the scribes and teachers of the law. So it might be that they keep hearing Jesus as one who teaches with authority, not just spouting opinions, not just trying to be scholarly, not just trying to be witty, but somebody who actually speaks the living word of God into their lives. And it draws people out. My prayer as a teacher, my prayer as a preacher, is that that's what's, what attracts people. That I can prepare myself and that God will work through me in such a way that when I preach, when I teach, people are drawn in. And they hear the word of God in, in a way that touches their life, touches their soul, and brings transformation. Question three, and this is one we have no answer to. What percentage of the crowd who came to hear Jesus had heard him before? Now, now the reason I ask this kind of question is because is we can imagine what's going on in the crowd as Jesus is teaching. Are, are people saying, hey, this is why I invited you, because last time when I heard Jesus, he spoke this way, and, and I thought you'd really like it. I thought you could really use this. So wh what do you think? What do you think of what Jesus is saying? Or they might say, hey, this, this is just times Jesus is taking his message. He's taking this teaching beyond what he taught us last time. How, how are they hearing Jesus time after time after time? Is Jesus repeating himself enough that, that, that it's being anchored in their hearts, that they're learning it, that it's not just in one ear and out the other? What are they doing? with this teaching, what impact is it having? Or we, we don't know if Jesus is, is building on the teaching each week. I mean, that's what I try to do in my preaching. That's whether I'm doing something that is technically a sermon series or not. I try to think, what's the direction that I'm going on in my preaching this week, this month, this year, over the time of, of preaching to these people, the church I'm appointed at? Am, am I giving the whole truth of God? Am I giving the whole message of God that they need to hear? Am I being sensitive to what's going on in the world in their lives? And, and is Jesus in his preaching being sensitive to what they need to hear? What's, what's maybe in the newspapers? Well, they didn't have newspapers in the news that week. What's in the gossip? Question four, why does Jesus tell a story about a farmer where many in his audience farmers are experienced in farming? We know Jesus is teaching by the lake. We know that around the lake, there's lots of fishermen. So if he told fishermen kinds of stories, that his audience could understand that because, well, they're fishermen. But farmers, were there lots of farmers around? Were the farmers able to take time off from working their field to come hear him? And my next question follows right on that. How recognizable would the actions of the farmer in the parable be as normal sowing, normal farming procedure. I ask this because it, it strikes me that the farmer, the sower, in the traditional translation, 
uh, is crazy. He's insane. Because uh, I've planted things before. I'm not a farmer. Never sowed things broadly. Only only gardens I've had were pretty limited. But I know I always had limited amount of seed, and I had to pay for the seed I had. And yet here's the farmer in the story, just throwing the seed all over the place. He throws it so some falls on the path. Hey, here's a path here. Here's the sidewalk. Farmer, sower, do you expect the seed to grow on the sidewalk? Why do you put it there? Why not be a little more careful? And some fell on rocky places. Why do you put seed on rocky places? It's not going to grow there. Come on, farmer. Uh, some falls in the thorns. The thorn, they're pretty hardy. No point in planting among the, the thorns unless, except uh, here's the farmer doing it. Here's the sower throwing it out there. And then finally, some of the seed fell on good soil. Why isn't the farmer casting a seed only on good soil? And I'm, and I'm wondering how the farmers and Jesus' audience are hearing this. Are, are they like me? Hearing it as, boy, this farmer is wasteful. This farmer is not acting like any farmer I would know because the seed is precious. You only have so much seed. So you only go to the good soil. You only put the seed on the good soil. Otherwise, it's wasted. Yet here's the sower just tossing it all out there. If farmers heard this, and, and if farmers heard Jesus telling the story this way, and it was at variance to their experience of farming. How did that affect how they listened to Jesus? Did they say, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. That's not how farmers work. This story is a crock. Or did they keep listening? Did, 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 did it make them think? How about when we hear things Jesus says, that don't fit in with the way we understand the world. It, it might be when we hear Jesus say something like, let's see, did I do the right thing here? Got to check and see if I'm recording here. Yep, I am recording. Yes, thank you. When, when Jesus says something like, somebody strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's, that's just crazy. We know, we know we can't take that literally because people would be taking advantage of us. I mean, if somebody strikes us, we're supposed to strike them back. Somebody attacks us, we attack them back. And in fact, if we think somebody's going to attack us, we think the thing to do is preemptive strike, defend ourselves. It only makes sense. Jesus, you're crazy. Or, or we might read Paul something. Uh, this, this week I was reading Titus. Uh, yesterday in my devotions, Titus uh, Paul's letter to Titus says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Do you like being subject? Do you like submitting to rulers and authorities? I don't. I like using my own mind. I like making my own decisions. I don't like just bowing down to people telling me what to do, even if they are technically in authority over me. 
I like to do what I, what I want to do, what I think is right. And yet here's Paul saying, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. What do we do? Do we just rip that out of the Bible? Do we say, oh, it just doesn't mean what it, what he thinks it means? Or, or that there's a supposed clause in there. If they tell you what you want to hear, this bit about slandering no one, be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Man, can you do that on, on social media? People are crazy on there. People are always saying things that set us off, that outrage us. And we just feel the need to be outraged in return. And yet the word says, be gentle. Be kind. Be considerate. Don't slander. Don't attack. How do we respond when we hear something in the word? Whether it's like Jesus here talking to farmers, saying things farmers would never do. Or when we hear Jesus or other writers of scripture saying things that don't fit with us. Do, do we submit to the word? Or do we just go our way? Uh, question six, getting back to Mark chapter four. Why was the farmer so careless about where he scattered the seed? Oh yeah, I wonder about that. We've been hitting on that. Why so careless? Let's hold off on that until we get to Jesus's explanation of the parable. And we see that Jesus closes the parable with whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. What's going on here? What does it mean to have ears to hear? Uh, if you're a teacher, and many of you are, maybe you've never been in a classroom setting, either in a school classroom or a church classroom, but maybe you've taught your own children. And you know, sometimes you, you teach them something, you tell them something, and right away, they're eager to listen, eager to hear, e eager to take it into their lives. But other times, we again have that experience. It goes in one ear and out the other. They don't have ears to hear. It might be that they're distracted. It might be that they're set against whatever it is you're teaching and they don't want to hear it. We humans, we're just that way sometimes. We don't have ears to hear. But Jesus is saying, as an as a invitation to think about this parable, whoever has ears to hear, whoever's inclined to listen, whoever's hungry to hear from God, listen, pay attention. Come now to the next part of this. Uh, come on. Uh, Mark 10, I mean, Mark 4, 10 through 12. When he was alone, and the, he hears Jesus, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and never hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Okay, my first question here is, how quick were the 12? The, the 12, remember, he chose them in Mark chapter 3. How quick were the 12 at recognizing their lack of understanding of the parable? Was it immediately as Jesus was telling it, they were saying, uh, Jesus, we don't, we don't get this. We don't understand. Or was it only later on reflection that they said, we, we heard you tell that story, Jesus, but we're not sure what the point was. We're not sure what you were getting. I mean, we're not farmers. 
uh, were fishermen, tax collectors, revolutionaries. Farming, we, we don't know farming. How about us? How quick are, are we to admit when we don't understand things? How quick are we when we hear something we don't understand to start asking questions? Now, sometimes I, I know I'm too quick. Sometimes when somebody's telling me something, I immediately go into asking questions mode before they even have a chance to finish what they're saying. But how about in church? You ever hear a sermon and after the sermon, you're, you're sort of saying, huh? What was the preacher talking about? What was he getting at? Or maybe you're listening to a Sunday school lesson or other lesson. What was the teacher trying to say today? I didn't get her at all. I think the disciples are doing the right thing here. They're, they're coming to Jesus. And they're saying, we didn't understand. Can you help us? Question two. Was there any public acknowledgement of non-understanding when Jesus told the parable? In other words, back in the previous nine verses, when Jesus is out there by the lake teaching, and he tells the parable, did anybody in the crowd signify, either by words, by mannerism, by action, that they didn't understand it? The advantage in that is that sometimes we're, when we're in an environment and we don't understand something and we signal that we don't understand it, it can be an occasion for the communicator to adjust, to say things differently, to, to try again so that we might understand. It might also help those other people that are listening with us so that they don't feel out of place if they too are not understanding. Now, it might be that they are understanding, or they think they understand when they don't, in which case our signaling non-understanding might help them to reassess their own lack of understanding or their perceived but inaccurate understanding. Uh, question three, how many others were with the 12? As it says here in verse 10, when he was alone, the 12 and the others around him ask him about the peril. So it's not just Jesus and the 12 that are there at this point of this deeper conversation. There are more disciples, more people who are hanging on to Jesus. It's not the crowd anymore, but it's a smaller group that those who would call themselves Jesus' disciples, his apprentices, his students, those who look to him as their rabbi, not just a rabbi, but their rabbi. How many are there? We don't know, but we know there were others there. Men, probably women, adults, maybe children. Uh, verse 4. What is the secret of the kingdom? Why has it been given to some but not to others? And what does it mean for it to be given? It, it looks here on the surface like Jesus is giving a public teaching and then a private teaching. The private teaching is the secrets of the kingdom. This, this is where the Gnostics got off. The Gnostics thought that there were secrets in Jesus' teaching, the secrets for only the insiders. But I'm not sure that's the best way to understand this. My, my understanding of parables, and this gets into my question number five. Question number five is, 
if the primary purpose of parables is not producing understanding, what is it? My understanding of the purpose of the parables, this and the others, is like a crowbar that Jesus takes to our minds, to our souls, to our lives, to pry us open, to pry apart our, our established habits, our ways of thinking, our assumptions, to break open our world so we can see things differently, so we can hear things differently, so we can become open to God. So the, the secret of the kingdom, at the very least, is the kingdom of God is near. It's here. It's available. And you who are responding, you who are the 12, and you who are, are not the 12, but you're hanging on anyway. You're counting yourself as my disciples. You get the secrets because you want them. Because you're willing to listen. You're willing to push. You're willing to say, I don't understand. See, it's, it's not the people who understand. It's not the, the super bright people who get everything that are here. It's the people who are willing to say they don't understand. Are you ever willing to put yourself in that number? Are you ever willing to say, hey, I don't understand. I don't get it. But I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to keep after Jesus until I get it. Question six. Why does Jesus quote Isaiah 6 here? What are the differences in contextual application in the original context and here in Jesus' telling? Now, if, if you've ever read Isaiah 6, the story is basically Isaiah goes up to the temple. It's in the year that King Uzziah died. And while he's in the, at the temple worshiping, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. There's no indication there that anybody else is having the same vision he is. As far as we can tell there in Isaiah 6, all the other temple business is going on uninterrupted while Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. And he sees the seraphs, the seraphim. They have six wings with one set they're covering their eyes. With one set they're covering their feet and with the other set they're flying. And seeing the Lord, Isaiah is undone. He sees himself clearly as a man of unclean lips, and as people, as a people of unclean lips. Their hearts are ruled by sin and brokenness and rebellion against God. But God sends an angel to get a coal from the, the altar there in heaven. He touches his lips and cleanses him, sets him free. And then, the, then the Lord speaks and says, Who will go for us? Who will take the message to the people? And as Isaiah's jumping up down, hey, here I am, I'll do it. And that's where this quotation comes from. That the people aren't going to be responsive. The people aren't going to be responsive like you, Isaiah. They're not going to jump up and down for joy at hearing the message. They're not going to be receptive, but that they may be ever seeing. The word's going to be there. It's, but they're not going to have ears to hear. They're going to see, but not perceive. They're going to hear, but not understand. It's going to go in one ear and out the other. That was the context for Israel in Isaiah's time. That was the context for many of the people in Jesus' time. Is that the context in our time? Is it the case that any people today do not have ears to hear? Oh, the message is proclaimed all around them. But no response. 
in my early days as a Christian, I, I became a Christian, gave my life to Christ my senior year of high school. And I was looking at the church, churches around me, and I was very disappointed. I was hearing preachers tell stories. I was hearing them tell jokes, but not hearing much of the gospel. And I was judging all preachers and all the churches about this. said, why do they never preach the gospel? Why is this, why are people not coming to faith? It's very judgmental. But then I finished college, went on to seminary and got my own appointment. I was out preaching in my church, churches. And as far as I could tell, I was preaching the gospel. I was preaching it hard, preaching it clear. And so often people in the congregation would just give me a blank stare. As if I was speaking Chinese and they were just being polite and sitting there. And it seemed like they had ears, but not ears to hear. So my prayer has become over the years when I'm preaching, when I'm teaching, is that we might have ears to hear, that my words might not just be sounds filling the silence, needless verbiage, but that we might have ears to hear, hearts to receive, not because I'm anything special, not because my preaching or teaching is anything special, but because the word of God wants to go forth into good soil. Question seven, what does it mean to see, but not perceive, to hear, but never understand? I've talked a bit about that just now in terms of my being a preacher. I experienced that before I became a Christian. I'd been in church all my life. Maybe not every Sunday, every year of my life, but pretty frequently. You asked me if I was a Christian, I just said, yeah, I'm a Christian. Are you a churchgoer? Yeah, I'm a churchgoer. But for me, I didn't get it. I don't know how much of it was what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers, lest they turn and believe. I don't know how much of it was that I was blinded by the evil one. I don't know how much of it was I just didn't have ears to hear. I, I didn't have eyes to see. I did not hear and understand. But I know that's a reality from my own experience. So I can't help but think that's still a reality in other people's experience. And I pray that it's not. In fact, I feel the need right now in the middle of this teaching to stop and pray for people. Father, I pray for those who are listening to this. I pray for those who will be listening to other teaching this week, preaching this weekend, that they would have ears to hear, hearts to receive, that the words would not just go forth into the void, they would not be spoken in vain. But that even if we preachers, even if we teachers don't say exactly what people need to hear, what you want them to hear, that you would translate it so that people could hear your word through us. Receive it as fruitful soil. Amen. Question eight. Why is God here... In Isaiah, and as Jesus quotes him here, why is he reluctant to have some people turn and be forgiven? Who are these people? Are there some people out there that God doesn't want to be forgiven? Some people that, that God has destined for hell? 
if we were if I were a Calvinist of a certain sort, I'd say, sure, there's double predestination. God chooses some people to go to heaven, some people to go to hell, some people for life, some people for death. That's just the way it is. But I'm not a Calvinist. Well, certainly not a Calvinist of that sort. I'm a Wesleyan. I believe God's grace is for all. I believe God wants all people to come to him. What I hear here is God's broken heart. I hear the kind of sentiment I, I, I read also in Ezekiel 33. The kind of sentiment that, that we might have with people when, when we've preached our heart out, when we've taught our heart out, when we've, we've given our heart to our kids, to other people. They're not listening, and, and we say something like, well, just go ahead and do what you want to do. We don't mean it, but we're so frustrated. And we sometimes think that they need to get to the point. They need to, as they say, hit bottom so they can perceive their own needs, so they can start listening, so they can start seeing. I think that's what Jesus is getting at here when he quotes this part of Isaiah. Go to our, our next paragraph here. It's the last paragraph we'll be looking at today, Mark 4, 13 through 20. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? They don't. How then will you understand any parable? They might not. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word at once and receive it with joy. But since they have no root, it's rocky, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on a good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Now, first question here, did Jesus really expect the disciples to understand the parable? How could they, how could we gain the skills to understand his parables? I think, well, I don't really think Jesus expected them to understand. I think he's kidding them a little bit, challenging them, provoking them to gain the skills, to gain the practice, to say, Lord, we don't understand the parables teach us, explain them to us, pry open our minds, pry open our hearts, pry open our souls so we can get it because we need your life. I think we can do that too, whether it's parables, preaching, teaching, whatever. Lord, open our hearts to understand you and don't let us become educated beyond our level of obedience. Let us put into practice what you teach us, what we do understand. Question two, should we take this parable or any other as allegorical, where each feature represents something else outside the parable? In this case, we would ask about who or what the farmer is, what the seed represents, uh, what the birds are, what the root is, what the cares of life are, and see these as, as masking as in the place of other things in the world. Uh, 
I'm not sure about allegory. I'm sort of doubtful about that, but we certainly see from Jesus' explanation that there are representations going on here. Question three, who in this context is akin to the farmer? Well, at the very least, I think it's Jesus. Jesus in his ministry is like the farmer. Jesus is throwing the seed out. He's throwing it out to those who will listen. The good soil. But he's also throwing it out on the rocky ground. He's throwing it out in the thorny ground. He's throwing it out on the path, sidewalk. He's just throwing it out there. Maybe, maybe some will listen. Maybe some will hear. Just being profligate and spreading the word. Can we do that? Can, can we spread the word and not just say, well, I'm, I'm going to wait and be a witness at church? Because I know at church, people will be receptive because otherwise they wouldn't be at church. Are we willing, like Jesus, to waste it, to put the word out there no matter what, to whoever, wherever we go? Uh, question four, what does Jesus mean by the word that the farmer sows? Well, I think in Jesus' case, it's the word of the kingdom. The word that the kingdom is available. The kingdom is near. It's here. It's available to you. You can take advantage of it. You can give your allegiance. You can put your faith in Jesus and his kingdom now. You can live out that allegiance. You can let it become the primary allegiance of your life. So your primary allegiance as we saw back in chapter 3, is not to your family. It's not to your country. It's not to your business. It's not to your own well-being. Not to your ideology. Not to your philosophy. It's to Jesus and all those other allegiances, however good they might be, are subservient to your primary allegiance to Jesus, to living in the power of his kingdom, the blessings of his kingdom. Question five. How does what is depicted in this parable map onto Jesus' ministry? Again, I think Jesus' ministry is going out there. He's going out there, going to anybody, going to the towns, to the villages, all throughout Galilee. We've seen that that's what he takes his mission to be. He goes out there repeatedly by the lake. Maybe he gets out on a boat. So he sits out so more people can gather, more people can hear. He goes out of his way to put the word out. Do we go out of the way? out of our way to put the word out. We could do that. Uh, question six, what does it look like for Satan to take away the word? Why does God allow this to happen? Do hearers have any say in the matter? Does the sower? Okay, yeah, we, we might wish, again, like good Calvinists of a certain sort, that God's grace was irresistible that when God's word went out, people could not reject it, that it had to be effectual, it had to have an effect, and not just any effect, but the effect God desired, at least in the lives of the elect. But Jesus' parable is that Satan comes, takes the word away. We have an enemy that's seeking to do that. That's one reason why sometimes when we prepare for worship, Sometimes when we prepare for teaching, sometimes when we go out witnessing, we pray something like, Lord, bind Satan. Let him be ineffective. Let him not distract people. Let him not shift their minds to other things. Let him not speak into their lives. Make them deaf to his lies. 
We, we can pray that. I think that's what's going on here. God gives people free will. God pe gives people the, the freedom to say no, even if that no is saying yes to Satan. Question seven, why would a person receive the word with joy? Well, the kingdom's available. God's here. Yeah, that's joyous message. But following that up, if they've done so, if they've received the message with joy, why would trouble or persecution make them fall away? Does the word or the seed have no lasting effects in their lives? Well, unfortunately, I've known people like this. I've known people that are gung-ho Christians at one point in their life. And then later they're not. Totally committed. And then they're not. Now again, if I were a certain kind of Calvinist, I would have an explanation for that. My explanation would be, now they were just faking it. They were tricking others and themselves. They were just deceived. They were never really receivers of the word. And if I were a certain kind of non-Calvin, a certain kind of Arminian, I'd say, no, clear evidence. They had their salvation. They lost their salvation. No security. Uh, personally, I'm not really happy with either conclusion. Uh, not sure what to make of this. I know the phenomenon's out there. I've seen it too often to deny it. But what I do is I fight against it. I pray for people. I pray for people that fall away, that they be restored. Try not to give up on them. Try to find ways to keep speaking the word into their lives. What about you? Where, where are you today? Have, have you at one point in your life received the word with joy, but now that's cooled off? Maybe, maybe your heart is even cold. Maybe, maybe your heart is even hard. My prayer for you today is that God would renew that joy. My prayer is that our church would become known as a church of joy that receives the word with joy, that lives out the word with joy, that proclaims the word with joy. And I pray that knowing we're not there yet. Too often we proclaim the word with grouchiness. Too, too often we proclaim it with self-righteousness. Too, too many times we proclaim it with exclusivity. Not in a winsome way. Question eight. This follows right up on that. Why would the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, or the desire for other things choke the word and make it unfruitful? Well, yeah, we get pretty busy, don't we? Get busy worrying about things. Might be worrying about our jobs. Something to worry about. Worrying about our health. Worrying about our family. Worrying about our country. Worrying about politics. Worrying about sports. Worrying about school. Worrying about church. I mean, even worrying about church can disconnect us from God. The worries of life, deceitfulness of wealth. Oh, yeah, we're just comfortable. We have enough money to get by, so, yeah, I, I, I can do without seeking God. I can do without pouring my heart out to God. I'm, I'm okay. And we pray against this. Nothing else, we, we can take this parable and Jesus' explanation of it as a prayer guide for ourselves and the people around us. Pray that these things won't happen to others or to us. Question nine, how is wealth deceitful? 
I think we trust in wealth. We, we give wealth more credibility than we give God. We say, if only I were wealthy, if only I had enough money. And it's really hard to have enough money, isn't it? Only one dollar more and I'll have enough. I get one dollar more, I'm, it's just ten dollars more and I'll be okay. It deceives us. We think we're secure and we're not. Find security in Jesus alone. Question 10, how is choking the word and making it unfruitful different from the previous negative outcomes? And we have this previous negative outcomes of uh, Satan snatching the word away, of having trouble of persecution come. I'm, I'm not really sure that this is different. I think it's just different angles of, of looking at the same thing. Question 11, what makes good soil good? What makes a good hearer good? To what degree, if any, do hearers ever have control over what kind of soil they are? I mean, it seems the way Jesus tells the story here is that he's not just being descriptive. He's not just saying, okay, this is the way it is. Some of the people are going to hear what I say. They're going to receive it, and that's great. Other people, they're going to maybe receive it for a bit, maybe for a little bit longer, but, but eventually it's not going to work. They're not going to have ears to hear. That's just the way it is. I don't think Jesus is being merely descriptive here. I think he's being invitational. That's why he has that if anyone who has ears to hear, let him hear. Because I think we have some control over whether we're going to be good soil. God's provenient grace is operative in our life, working in us, drawing us to him, extending that invitation, making it possible for us to respond. But will we respond? Will we choose? Will we seek to be the good soil? That's the question. Final question here, and this question we've already dealt with. Why does the sower waste so much seed on soil that isn't good? If it isn't a waste, how is it not a waste? Why do we waste so much of our time doing things that nobody responds to? Why do we spend time doing online Bible studies when there's only a few that show up? Why, why do we waste our time having multiple services at church when, when the sanctuary isn't even full once? Why do we waste our time witnessing when nobody pays attention? Why do we waste our time studying scripture when we don't get anything out of it today? It's just a waste. I think we give up too easily. We have expectations that are too small. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes it's the drip, 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 drip of the word working its way into us. And you have this seed that's planted in the soil. You plant the seed. And you look later that day, nope, seed didn't work. You look that night, nope, seed didn't work. You look the next day, nope, seed didn't work. You look the next week, nope, seed didn't work. And it takes weeks, it takes months, sometimes it takes years for even good soil to produce. So you don't know what you are. You don't know what they are, the places you're sowing your seed. So you pray and you keep sowing and you keep going. There's no way around it. You got to keep going. You got to keep pushing. Because God wants people to respond. God wants that good, fruitful soil. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you invite us to be good soil. You invite us to open our lives, to have our lives pried open by the power of your word, by these parables of Jesus. Speak your truth into us. Set us free. Make us good soil. Let us hear the parable that way. But Lord, also let us hear the parable 
as we become sowers, as we put the word out. Let us not get weary in well-doing. Let us not think we're just wasting it. But let us keep pushing it out there, sowing the word, praying for deliverance so that people can hear you and take your word to heart and they themselves might become fruitful soil. Amen. Well, thanks for joining me today as we travel through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, next week, we'll be continuing on in Mark chapter 4 through some more parables. See you then.